My name's Helen Keane and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Adventures in Space and Tim, a podcast inspired by space generally and Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station in particular. In this episode... So someone that normally wears glasses might no longer need glasses. Need but don't want glasses? Don't fancy laser eye surgery? There is an alternative. Going into space... We hear from Andrew Winard from Northumbria University about his research into the curious and surprising effects of space on the human body. Find out why an office desk job has at least one risk factor in common with being an astronaut and discover how, when going to the gym in an orbiting space station, expensive membership fees and falling off the treadmill really are the least of your worries. Then I speak to Dr Sheila Kanani of the Royal Astronomical Society about the past and the future plans for their upcoming 200th anniversary and how 19th century astronomer and planetary scientist Caroline Herschel still makes her presence felt today. Plus, Sheila's work on the Cassini mission and those curious moons of Saturn. But first, Ian Simmons meets the researcher with a professional opinion on Tim Peake's space marathon in microgravity to find out anything and everything you've ever wanted to know about the strange physical changes that happen to astronauts on the International Space Station. So, my name's Andrew Winard. I'm a space medicine researcher. I'm just completing my PhD, where we've been investigating one of the European Space Agency's flagship medical projects, which is looking into an exercise device for rehabilitating spinal control in people that have got uh, deconditioning and atrophy, for example, uh, astronauts, and to try and avoid injuries and low back pain. Can you tell me a bit about the physical changes that the human body undergoes when it's exposed to microgravity? Absolutely, yeah. So there's, there's quite a few changes. If we start from the beginning, when someone first enters microgravity after launch and then uh, go through the kind of changes you'd see over a period of time. So the first thing that happens is you notice that gravity is no longer something you can feel. So the gravity is still there, but because you're in free fall, orbiting the Earth, its effects are not felt. So... You'll notice that straight away in that you won't have a sense of what's down and what's up, so people can get rather disorientated. The inner ear, which is what usually senses gravity and tells us which way's down, and if you're in a lift, you know, when you go up and you feel heavy, when you come down you feel lighter, it senses those sorts of forces. Um, no longer has any st- stimulus to, to sense that. And so people can get motion sickness, and what we call it space sickness. So the first few days... Um, you can be rather disorientated, not sure which way's up, which way's down, and your inner ear can get confused. The next thing you'll start to feel is swollen face, maybe some stuffiness in your nose. So because when we're on Earth, gravity is usually pulling all the blood and all the fluids in the body down towards the feet. When we go into microgravity in space, um, that no longer happens, so all the fluids begin to float. Just like the person's floating in the spacecraft, the fluids start to float inside of the body as well, and they tend to shift upwards. So usually it's all pulled down to the feet, but now the fluid's evenly distributed, so it starts to shift more towards the head, the chest. And so initially you'll start to get swollen face due to that, and your nose gets a bit stuffed up. But over a few days, the body senses this increased pressure and fluid in the chest and in the head, and it starts to offload it. 
and so you'll you know you'll wee out lots of fluids, get rid of it, offload it, and what you then will find is that you have less less blood, less less blood volume flowing around. So the heart no longer has to work quite as hard as it usually does. You're not pumping blood against gravity, but you're also not pumping quite the same amount of blood at the same time. And so as you stay in that environment a little bit longer, you'll start to actually decondition your heart. So it's not pumping as hard, the muscles start to get a bit weaker. But it's not just the heart muscle that starts to get weaker because you're no longer holding yourself up against gravity. All of the muscular system um, starts to weaken as well. So a lot of the muscles, any muscles that are involved in holding you up against gravity, so your leg muscles that you normally stand up with, your back muscles that you normally hold your trunk up with, they all start to uh, get weaker, get smaller, uh, the longer you stay up there. And some of the other effects that you might notice, um, again due to the fluid shifts, is your eyesight might change. So someone that normally wears glasses might no longer need glasses. Uh, one of the reasons for that is, is those fluid shifts we mentioned earlier increase the pressure in the head. We think, we're not completely sure yet, but we think that that's pushing um, on the back of the, the eyes because you get increased pressure inside the skull. And as that pressure pushes onto the eyes, it can change the, the shape of the eyeball. And that has a similar effect to what people's glasses can have, that it can change the way the eye is focusing on things. So you might not need your glasses and when you're up in space. As you stay even longer, you also start to lose bone mass. And on average across the body, it's about 2.5% per month that your bones will start to get thinner. You tend to get more of the thinning effect down in the feet and in the legs, and as you come up the body, it gets less and less. So you can actually even slightly gain a little bit of bone up at the head. But what all this does is when you, when you come back, it gives you problems in terms of you'll have thin bones, you'll have not as much blood flowing around, you'll be deconditioned in your heart and lungs. And so you're potentially prone to things like fainting straight away because when you come back, all that blood's sucked back down into the legs by gravity. You've not got as much going around, the heart's not working as hard as it used to. So the very first few hours, maybe the first day or two, you may well go from sitting to standing and feel a little bit dizzy and faint. And there's a, a great video on YouTube of uh, astronaut Heidi Piper. She'd only been on a I shot a mission about a week or two. She landed, everything seemed fine, came along to the press conference and she was stood up at the podium trying to tell everyone how great the mission was and how exciting it was to be in space. And she was getting paler and paler as she stood there. And uh, after about a minute or two, she's struggling to speak, she's clutching onto the podium and she eventually completely faints. And she comes around pretty quick, they lay her down. She stands back up, she tries to carry on and promptly does it all over again and faints a second time. Oh dear. At which point they, uh, they take her off. And, but over a few days, that would come back. You, you bring the fluids back on quite quickly. Um, well, what's harder to bring back is obviously the muscles, your ability to control your posture, um, and certainly the bones. Mm. Can so can there me. be permanent effects on the body then? That's a good question. So the, the bones are the hardest one to recover from. So there is potentially risks for osteoporosis in the longer term. So osteoporosis being thinning of the bones that's difficult to recover from. And this is one of the main ones that has been trying to prevent um, using things like exercise countermeasures and when they're in space. So, for example, we've found through research on the International Space Station that exercise that involves impact, potentially vibration, 
and particularly forces going through the bones, are the best ones to try and prevent bone loss. So anything that puts a kind of a torsion or a shear stress through bones is the best to protect it. And we combine that with uh, medications, things like calcium supplements, potentially some drugs called bisphosphates that also... We all know calcium is one of the main elements of bone, so it helps to, to keep all that in there. And what's quite exciting is that some of the more recent uh, science results that have been coming from the International Space Station and through NASA have shown that the exercise countermeasures combined with some of these supplements might actually, for the first time, be completely mitigating some of the bone loss in a few uh, astronaut case studies. We need a few more yet to be sure that it is the case throughout them all, but it's an example of how space research might be actually finding ways to prevent bone loss and to protect bones, which may also then have applications in, in populations on Earth as we get older and suffer the similar kind of effects of losing bones, losing muscle mass. What has your research been about and the things that you've been doing here at Centre for Life? How has that all, all contributed to this? Okay, so earlier on I mentioned that we lose muscles and the ability to maybe control our posture. When you go into space, it's not just um, fluids that are coming up and bones that are being lost. Your spine is no longer being compressed, so it's no longer holding your weight um, during the day. So your spine lengthens by about 3%. And that's happening because the discs between the vertebrae, um, they, when you're asleep at night, they take fluid in and they expand and they grow a little bit. And then in the day when you put your weight through, it compresses them back down and the fluid comes out. It's one of the ways that those discs metabolize. So it's the way that they get fluid in, it's the way they get rid of waste products. When you go into space, that process is interrupted. It's a bit like you're staying in bed the whole time. So they expand and they stay expanded. The problem is that is it begins to stretch the things it's made of. And as well, they lose that ability to get products in and throw waste products out. So the discs start to decondition. In addition, the, the muscles either side of the spine um, and around the, the trunk, around the abdomen, will all start to atrophy. And the brain also loses the ability to regulate the switching on and off of the muscles in relation to how you might be loading the spine or moving. So when you're in space, that might give you a little bit of backaches, the muscles are being stretched, the spine's lengthening, the discs may be starting to decondition. But it's much more of a problem when you come back to Earth because suddenly gravity's straight away back on you after you've landed. Um, and if you've not got the ability to reactivate those muscles... You're not sure exactly how to hold your spine. Your brain's a bit confused about how to you know, keep your spine nice and upright and distribute the loads appropriately. You suddenly become at a really high risk of getting a spinal injury. And we see in the research there's maybe a four to five times increased chance of astronauts getting what we call a slip disc and following spaceflight, which is where the discs between the spine actually start to rupture. The, the soft jelly-like centre can start to push out. And that can cause pain. It can push on nerves coming out of the spine. It can cause lots of problems and not something we want to see happening. So we've been investigating this exercise device, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a European Space Agency flagship medical project. And what we found is we, the device looks like a cross-trainer, only we have no resistance whatsoever. So people are standing on the device, they're pedalling very slowly and against no um, resistance. And it's all about learning to stand and load your spine in an upright position whilst you're controlling everyday movements, it's very similar to walking. And what we've seen is that it's actually helping people to be able to switch back on the muscles that are controlling 
or spinal position, especially in the lower spine and around the lumbar spine and the pelvis, to be able to get a much better spinal posture, which is more appropriate for loading forces as they come through the spine. And we've also seen that it's activating key muscles such as lumbar multifidus, transverse abdominis. So these are the really deep spinal muscles and that are really important for posture control and movement control of the spine. And it's switching those muscles back on without people having to think about it. So normally in everyday physio, we see people coming into a clinic and they might have back pain and we'll see that their postures, you know, it's a little bit off. They might not be controlling their spine well as they move. And we spend a lot of time with people trying to get them to re- re-recruit these muscles, switch them back on. And it's very difficult to get people to learn how to switch on very deep postural muscles just by thinking about it. So the fact that our exercise device looks like it's doing this without people even having to think about it, without having to learn how to switch them on, it's just doing it automatically is potentially a really great leap forward in, in rehabilitating this in both, like I mentioned, the astronauts when they come back from space, but everyday people with low back pain. Down here, I know the people that sit in uh, desks and offices every day and also have very similar slumped posture, not using the muscles, and the astronauts uh, do. So it might be, might be relevant to both of them. And what we did down here at the Life Science Centre was a fantastic um, opportunity to get a lot of people exercising on the device. Um, because the prevalence of low back pain in the general population is about 50%, it also meant that we had something like 170 people over four weeks going on the device, and half of those people had back pain. So we could look at, is the device also having these effects in a population that has back pain that might be really relevant to uh, the exercise in the future? And that's exactly what we saw. So the previous studies where we'd seen the muscles being activated in healthy people, the kind of posture it created in those people were also being seen in the people with back pain. So it made it look as though um, the, the device might be um, effective for people with back pain. And it's now led to uh, us being able to justify doing a, a much a more involved clinical study with the device, which is going to happen in the next year in partnership with the space agency. So the psychological elements of space, we've not really touched a lot on that, but there's the, the one I did touch on earlier, which is where you can be very disorientated and that there's no up and no down. So, you know, and also your general ability to control your body um, is completely changed because again, you've lost the brain's usual sensory inputs of, of how am I loading this, this joint? How am I loading these muscles? Um, where's the floor? Where's the ceiling? Which is the walls? And one thing that you can do in space, which you can't do very well on Earth, is you can work quite happily and with your feet on the ceiling and someone can be completely upside down working alongside someone that you would think is the right way up. And to try and deal with that disorientation on the space station, they do say, you know, this surface is going to be the ceiling, these two are the walls, this one's the floor. We'll try and orientate everything in that way to make it a little bit more clear. But because the space station is limited on space, they still do have some things going on on the ceiling. And you, you can see some of the videos if you watch um, on the NASA website. Um, there's the live streams from the space station. You may well see someone working. They appear to be completely upside down. So there's that ability to get uh, rather disorientated. There's also the problems with controlling your body. So um, you need to, when you're in space, actually remember to slide your feet or slide a hand underneath a a rail or one of the bands to actually anchor yourself in position. Otherwise, you can start doing something with a piece of equipment. And if you're trying to push on it, you'll probably push yourself off the other direction and uh, float away. There are other things that astronauts can do in space to counter the physical problems that they're, they're experiencing from microgravity. Yeah, absolutely. So exercise is the key 
the key thing and they, they have three different forms of exercise on this, the International Space Station at the moment so they've got a cycle machine so they can put their legs on the pedals and pedal this is good for cardiovascular fitness and then they have a treadmill so they can't just stand on the treadmill the way we would and start running because obviously they would float off so they have some bungee cords there's a harness goes over their shoulders around their trunk pulls them down onto the the treadmill and then they they can run on that and while they're, while they're using that device for the the back health and the spinal health it's really important that they are they're monitored so we have a whole team of sports scientists and a physio at the European Astronaut Center in Germany and they they watch the astronauts when they're when they're running on the treadmill and they'll be looking at how are they loading their bodies so we usually want them to run nicely in the middle of the treadmill with the bungee cords pulling straight down if they start to lean forwards again losing those normal spinal curves and then that's suggesting that they're not recruiting their spinal muscles properly. It again puts them potentially at increased risk of uh, injuries. So we spend a lot of time telling them, you know, nice and upright. We send them pictures of themselves on the on the treadmill so they can see if they're starting um, to lose their running technique. I don't know if you saw when Tim was running the London Marathon. I was really keen when I was watching him that his, his posture was nice and, and upright. I was really pleased to see that he had a really good, solid vertical alignment with this posture, nice spinal curves, it was really, really good to see. And the final device that they have is a resistance exercise device. So resistances can be quite tricky, again, to create in space. So they had this machine which uses pneumatics. So, you know, when you've got fluids inside the pistons and you, you know, you're resisting against those, um, those pneumatics to create resistance. And um, I've got a really clever device, the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device which you can set up in all sorts of different configurations. So you can do loaded squats, you can do deadlifts, a lot of the resistance uh, uh, kind of exercises that you would see people doing with weights in an everyday gym. They can do most of those on this, this single device um, on the space station. And it's really clever in that it's then isolated from the station. Because if you start to do a lot of exercise, the same with the treadmill, start to do a lot of exercise, start to put a lot of vibration in, you can actually start the whole space station uh, vibrating, oscillating, uh, kind of waving up and down. Um, and you really don't want to do that because uh, you don't want to damage that structure. It's, it's your life support, it's your home. If you get uh, a leak in, in somewhere and start losing your atmosphere, that's no good. Um, so these are really clever devices that are isolated from that. And um, I did, when I was working on my, my, my PhD, um, have a chat with one of the astronauts over at NASA about some of the exercises that they did, especially earlier on, um, in space flight history and he was saying that one of his early missions to the space station he was up there and um, they found it really fun to be on one side of the space station module propel themselves off to the other side land on the other side and come back the to the, the you know the other way so they're flying backwards and forwards across the module and um, he said this was good fun for a couple of minutes and then we started hearing the vibration alarms going off and then the ground uh, called up and said you know what are you guys doing <laughs> Um, and so you can see that, you know, you really do need to make sure that your exercise is isolated from the structure. Because it's not just the structure, but you've got delicate experiments going on that you don't want to shake around either. Yes, so uh, those are the sort of problems that you see on the ISS. We're contemplating longer voyages to, to Mars and one day be, even beyond. Uh, what further problems could the human body experience on, say, a voyage to Mars? So... I'm already working with the European Space Agency and you mentioned Mars there and Mars is the 
the kind of the ultimate long-term goal at the moment. But that's that's quite a challenge because it's it's quite a long way to go. We've never gone beyond the moon yet. Um, and since the 60s when we had the Apollo missions, we've we very much pulled back in the Earth's uh, orbit, so we've got the International Space Station. We've not really gone beyond uh, Earth orbit. But we are now looking at back to, back to the Mars. But to get there, we really need to take stepping stones. So we'll probably do lunar missions before we go on onto Mars. The reason for this is that you can see the space stations in, in Earth orbit. That's, that's quite easy. You can get there relatively quickly. If something goes wrong, you can come back quite quickly. You can communicate with them pretty much live. Once you go to the moon, it's a little bit further. You know, it takes a little bit longer to come back. It's a bit harder to abort your mission. There's ever so slight communication delay, but again, nothing that's really going to be too problematic. But on the, if you go back to the moon first, you can learn, you know, how to land on a, a planetary surface. You can look at what are the impacts of being in long-term partial gravity. And this is something that I'm working on with the European Space Station. So we're doing a systematic review, looking at what are the known effects of partial gravity compared with microgravity. And we're looking at how do people move in partial gravity, looking back at the Apollo missions, looking at some partial gravity simulations that we've done since. Because there may be a whole different raft of a physiological problem. So it might be that it's not quite as difficult as being on the space station, but there still may well be um, muscle loss, bone loss, um, postural changes, all the similar things, maybe maybe not as bad. And what the European Space Agency is saying is that a lot of the countermeasures that we use on the space station probably aren't going to be directly transferable to uh, the moon. So we're looking at what are the effects, because we, we've got some research into it, but we're not completely sure. We're going to have a look at that, try and figure it out, think about what countermeasures and exercises we're going to need to do, ESA's looking at doing some lunar missions in the 2020s, so not that far off. Again, we can then learn from what happens to people when they do these lunar missions. We can perfect the systems, and then we can start thinking, now can we go off to Mars? Because once you go on to Mars, then you've got things like a 20-minute communication delay. You've got maybe two-month journey to come back if something does go wrong. So, you know, you really want to make sure that by the time you're doing that Martian mission, you're pretty confident that you know the effects of the microgravity period when you're on your way there you've got your exercise countermeasures we pretty much got that from the space station we also then need to perfect the planetary countermeasures what are the physiological effects of that how do we stop them that's what we're going to hopefully learn from previous research when we do the lunar missions once all that's in place then we can really start realistically looking potentially at a martian mission one of the other main things that we need to deal with is the radiation dose so already if you're on the space station you're still within Earth's magnetic field, but you still maybe get 10 times the dose of radiation that you would here. Once you start to go really beyond uh, the Earth, looking at Mars, which I don't believe has a, a magnetic field, uh, certainly not of the strength of Earth, you're going to have a radiation problem as well. So shielding people from the radiation and um, protecting them from that and maybe looking at countermeasures to try and help them and deal with that um, is going to be important to also consider. Isn't there something to do with lining the walls of the space uh, ship with astronaut poo? <laughs> so anything which is uh, potentially high density, water's um, a good potential one. So, uh, for example, on your Mars mission, you could maybe put your water tanks, that be, might be nicer, um, between yourself and, say, the sun to protect you from maybe solar radiation. 
but you do also have the issues of galactic rays um, and that's difficult to stop even with a, a tank of water you know we have the earth's magnetic field we have the atmosphere that protects us from them and we still get uh, doses of galactic radiation um, but yeah absolutely lining the ship with dense material water tanks what you mentioned maybe <laughs> and there's certainly potential for protecting them in those ways and please see the links in the podcast notes for more on Andrew's research. I first met Dr Sheila Kanani a few years ago when she rather wonderfully made a comet in a bucket at my live space show. I caught up with her again the other day to talk about her role at the Royal Astronomical Society. I'm Dr Sheila Kanani. I'm the Education, Outreach and Diversity Officer at the Royal Astronomical Society and I'm a planetary scientist by trade. Um, and also a science teacher. I think yeah. I may know the answer to this. Do you have a particular planet of interest, Sheila? Well, obviously I like the Earth because that's where we are, but um, I call myself Saturn Sheila on Twitter because I did a PhD using Cassini data, which is orbiting Saturn at the moment. So um, that's, that's my favourite planet. My PhD was about the magnetic field um, and the magnetosphere of Saturn and how it interacts with the rings and the moons. But as an aside, during that time, I learned about the plethora of moons of Saturn and they are more exciting to me than the planet at the moment just because they are very strange and really all quite unique and they're all part of Saturn. So I quite like that idea. You can't go, oh, that's a typical Saturn moon. No, they all have exactly. their own weird yeah. thing going on. Made from different stuff and they look strange and... Some have got some are like primordial Earths, and some look like the Death Star, and yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Something for everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the moons of Saturn <laughs> could be their tourist slogan. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that within sort of the next generation's lifetime, we'll find microbial evidence on other places in our solar system. And there's Enceladus, which is one of Saturn's moons, covered in ice, but with a salty water ocean under the ice. And I just don't understand why it would be without life of some sort. The, the problem with the planetary science is that the missions take a long time from conception to actually getting somewhere. So, for example, uh, the Cassini mission, the, the plan started in the 80s. It took a few, years to, a few years to be built. It took seven years to get to Saturn, and then it's been there over 10 years. So if you're involved in a planetary mission, you could that could be your lifetime career. Mm, that's about to think. So, yeah, born so around the same time you were. Technology-wise, we're pretty much there um, in terms of, for example, going to Enceladus, drilling through the ice and measuring the water. It's just the time and and getting the funding. It's it's one of those missions that's on the on the radar of, of space agencies, but it's getting through the funding process and then actually being built and getting sent. So. That's why I said sort of like the next generation's lifetime rather, unfortunately, than ours, unless we live quite old. The Cassini mission is ending soon, mm -hmm. and they plan to crash Cassini into Saturn at the end of this year, which I think is quite cool. But gas planet, so it's mm. not going to be a crash in the sort of terms mm. that we'd probably think about. we think about it on Earth. Um, but it will be interesting to know how long the instruments can survive and if any pictures can be taken. And maybe mm -hmm. the last thing will be a... A little green man or woman waving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be quite interesting. I just love the solar system. I think it's the most tangible part of astrophysics and space science and cosmology. So anything that's happening within the solar system is interesting to me. Mm. Could you tell us a bit 
tell me a bit about the history of yeah. the Royal Astronomical Society, where yeah. we are today. So the Royal Astronomical Society is a learned society. It was formed in 1820 and it was given its royal charter a few years after that. And then it moved into Burlington House, where we are today, in 1874. And it's a membership organisation. Well, we have just over 4,000 members at the moment, about 20% of which are female, which is pretty good. And most of the members are science academics. We also have amateur astronomers, teachers, students that make up our membership too. And in 2020, we'll be celebrating our bicentennial, 2016 was quite important because it was 100 years of women being allowed to be fellows of the RAS. And, um, That's the, relatively progressive. That it? is quite progressive yeah. in relation to the other learned societies. Mm. The sad thing is the reason that women weren't allowed to be fellows was because of the pronoun he, which was written in the charter. So, so even though they gave Caroline Herschel a yeah. medal, probably about 100 years yeah, before that. Yeah, 1828 she got her oh, medal. Oh, right, so, yeah. Um, so there were some honorary female fellows and women were allowed to win medals but they weren't allowed to officially be fellows because of the pronoun he but she was the first woman to win the gold medal for mm. her work um, in 1828 another woman didn't win that award until 1996 ah so that bit was, of a gap yeah <laughs> and that was Vera Rubin um, it's it's a funny place because historically there's lots of quirks and it is progressive and we are looking towards our next 200 years, but there's some interesting stories to tell about how the history has changed over the years. I feel like I've got to know Caroline Herschel quite well. Um, she's someone that I wasn't really on my radar before, I admit. Um, you know, I'd heard of William, but hadn't really heard of Caroline. And through the school's programme and through the fact that we do own quite a lot of her lab books and, and notes and stuff, I really feel like she's been personified to me. Um, and I identify with her because she was four foot nine or something and she was quite a feisty <laughs> character and she did all this amazing planetary science and I'm a planetary scientist so I do feel quite excited by her and then one of the first women to sign to be officially allowed to be a, a fellow was a lady called Fiametta Wilson and she was an astronomer in the early 1900s but during the first world war she used to go out and catalogue meteors and she used to do that at night in the middle of bombings and things and she was so dedicated to her cause that she was actually picked up by the police they thought she was a spy and I like those kinds of stories of determination I think they're brilliant You are involved in outreach and diversity and yeah. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a varied role every day is different so I cover education so that's all the things to do with schools particularly um, I teach GCSE astronomy and we'll have our first cohort doing their exam in June this year so hopefully they do really well uh, we do school visits we go into schools and careers information and lectures and lessons and all that kind of stuff but we also have school visits here so we've had quite a few primary schools coming into the RAS for half a day where they have a science demo and a comet making session with me which is kind of my signature move at the moment but then they also meet Caroline Herschel and we have a fabulous actress who plays her and then they look at some of her books that are handwritten and that belong to us because of our history so they have a really immersive experience all about Caroline Herschel and comets and and, and that kind of thing and then public outreaches or public talks and family groups and, and we have a public lecture series so people can come in and, and hear about what's going on in the world of astronomy and geophysics 
at the time. And then the diversity stuff is really interesting to me because it's the area that I'm not most comfortable in. Um, didn't really think about it much until mm. I started this role. But learning about things like unconscious bias and trying to get a more more diverse workforce and that doesn't just mean gender it means um, sexual orientation and socioeconomic background so it's really nice and it all interlinks so when I'm going into schools and that I'm thinking about all three things at the same time. When you look back at the history of astronomy it's, it's kind of the most democratic accessible science really isn't it? It is and it's very collaborative it mm. has to be because of you know we're not looking at a tiny bit of earth we're looking at the whole of space and everyone's in on it, so it's not just NASA, um, Europeans and British and, and Chinese and Indians and everyone are all part of the space race. Yeah, and countries like China and India who have contributed loads of ideas over the, over the millennia, mm. and then that's kind of interesting now to see where those countries go yeah. in the future in terms of their space programmes. Yeah, definitely, and on a budget as well, mm. budgets that Europeans and NASA can't seem to match. We've been really lucky actually because to celebrate our bicentenary we've had a big pot of money allocated for public outreach um, and so I've been part of the project RAS 200 where we've allocated half the money so far and we're allocating the other half the money in the next few months to groups of people doing public outreach in astronomy and geophysics that we don't normally work with. So um, not academics, universities, amateur astronomers but charities, organisations like the Prince's Trust, the Workers' Educational Association. Um, we've been working very closely with a small charity in Scotland called Care for Carers, who formulated a programme of um, astronomy residentials for young carers. Whilst, and whilst they're on these um, residentials, they know that whoever they're caring for is catered for. So it's um, stuff that we wouldn't normally have done and it's been really impactful and really nice to see that astronomy can make a difference to people's lives. And it sounds really cheesy, but you hear about kind of people getting off the streets because they started playing football or whatever, or music. But if we can do that with astronomy, then that's really cool. I think that's the perfect place to end. This is the last of these space podcasts for now. Thank you for listening and onwards to Mars. Adventures in Space and Tim is made in association with the UK Space Agency and the International Centre for Life in Newcastle. The theme music is Modular Space by Martin Molin from the band Wintergarten. This podcast was presented, produced and edited by Helen Keane, with special thanks to Ian Simmons. Wolf Tea Production.